This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Jacob Rayome. So he is the pastor of Trinity Bible Chapel in Ontario, Canada. He got his Master of Divinity from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary there in Kentucky. And he's one of the many Canadian pastors that ran afoul of the authoritarian Canadian government by holding church in 2020 and 2021. So that was during all the COVID lockdowns and all the different things that were happening up there in that crazy authoritarian government that is in Canada. And at one point, He was facing up to a year in jail and a $100,000 fine for violating Canada's so-called health restrictions. And even to this day, there are millions of dollars worth of fines and potential problems that are going to, you know, become a problem for him, his church, the elders of his church. And we talk about all of that in this podcast, but the whole reason why this, this even came to be is because he is featured in a new documentary called Antichrist and His Ruin, which is the main subject matter for today's show. And that is going to be in the show notes. But in this interview, We talk about him uh, kind of growing up in Canada, what Canadian life has been like. We talk about Canadian history and how it does have a Christian founding, but how Christian morality has been eroded over time, specifically in the 80s and 90s, but even going back to the 60s with things that were happening in Pierre Trudeau's government. So that is Justin Trudeau's father, at least as far as we know his father, because there are some different things about who might actually be his father, but that's not what the subject matter of today is. But in this thing, in this discussion today, we talk about the things that go on on in a government like that and how that can have a direct impact on families and churches. And so when we talk about Antichrist and his ruin, it really details how going from the Puritans and John Bunyan and all the way through to today, what has happened in Canada to erode the family and the church and the capital S state taking over the church. But we talked about the threats of pastors being arrested and then pastors actually being arrested, the need of men to stand up in the face of the predations of these authoritarian governments. But then one of the things that we talk about towards the end, we talk about the concept of being kind without being nice and how a lot of people that are kind of in the tone police, they want to talk about, Oh, you know, the tone of the things you're saying is just really, really mean. Couldn't you be a little bit nicer? But again, you can be kind without being nice because sometimes you don't need to be nice. Sometimes you need to defend the flock. Sometimes you need to defend against the predations of a dark force that is pushing against you, your family, your church, and the greater society. So I really, really enjoyed my time with Jacob, so I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Jacob Rayom, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, did I nail the last yeah, name? Yeah, you got it. Did, did I get it? Because like I, I practiced for all of 15 seconds before we got on here, so I appreciate you giving me the phonetic spelling of that. But uh, to kind of give a, we're going to be going to a lot of different places, covering a lot of different grounds today in terms of this conversation. But let's just start simply. You're a professional Christian, so uh, you're, you're a pastor. You've been a pastor for a very long time. So I guess let's start there. Why did you decide to go into the ministry as your profession? And then maybe give us an idea of, of uh, how you accepted Christ as well. I went in the ministry because I had a burning desire to preach the Word of God, and I saw that as something that needed to be done, especially within um, my area where I live. So that, I mean, it sprung from, uh, I guess, a a perceived need and then a desire that came from that perceived need. And I became a Christian when I was 
I guess 15 or 16 years old, 15. I grew up in a home where we went to church every now and then. But then in high school, I met a girl who talked to me about, told me about the Lord Jesus and um, that I'd go to hell if I don't put my faith in him. And that kind of rattled me a bit. And so I picked up a Bible and read it through. Uh, and about a year and a half it took me and through reading it through and the conversations I was having, I, uh, I accepted Christ and put my faith in him. And then I ended up marrying that girl that told me about uh, the Lord originally. So we've been married for, I guess, 22 years this summer. So yeah. I was about to say that there was a little twinkle in your eye when you mentioned this girl. I was yeah. like, I'm assuming this girl was attractive yeah. and she was so attractive. You decided to put a ring on it. But let, let's go back to the word that you use quite yeah. a bit, even in just your opening answer there, Jacob, and that's need. Mm. So you saw a need in your area. Now, I think you could live anywhere on the globe and you would see a need for the gospel of Christ. So I don't know that that's necessarily unique. But I guess there is some uniqueness to being a Christian in Canada because you're talking to a mainly American audience, but I think our second uh, most devoted audience is there in Canada. So so what did you mean by a need in your area? Well, Canadian culture radically secularized um, in the 80s and 90s. So, I mean, secularization started, I think, probably a little later in Canada than it did in the United States. But when it when it took root, it, it really it moved very rapidly. And in our particular, in our geographical area of Canada, it's the most populated part of the country. So a good chunk of the Canadian population lives within two-hour drive of where I minister. And in the 90s, when I was contemplating ministry, so late 90s, early, I guess early 2008, late 90s is when I was contemplating ministry and training for ministry. That was when the seeker movement really took root. In this area. And so any church that would have historically been evangelical and held to the gospel, um, I think most, probably 90, maybe 100%, but certainly 90%, 99% were infected with the seeker movement, which was a real watering down of the preached word and uh, a dulling of it to appeal to the, I guess, carnal senses of the lost to draw crowds in the church. And and it did draw crowds for a while. I don't think it is as much anymore. But in doing that, I think most of those churches have have completely abandoned the gospel. And if not abandoned the gospel, they've uh, there's probably some people in them, probably maybe lots, but um, ha- they haven't heard the gospel in a long time and, and quite a few evangelical churches in this area, I suspect. And I know that from what people tell me. Um, when I preach in other venues, what I hear, and I preach a sharp gospel message, people are like, well, I haven't heard that in years. And then every now and then you you go to a funeral where a pastor will preach from another evangelical church, and you just leave thinking, my goodness, this is what these people are having, are being fed. This is terrible. So there there was a need in our area to have a, a, a gospel-preaching, word-centered, Christ-exalting church. And I remember even in the early 2000s, I was in Bible college at the time, and in, a lot of people, John MacArthur showed up and preached about 45 minutes south of here, an hour south of here. And it was in a massive church facility. And there, I, I sensed then there was a real hungering for the word of God because there was so full. There were people sitting on the steps, sitting on the platform next to him, listening to him preach. And and the, the place was absolutely packed. I had a balcony that was packed. And, and I remember thinking at that point in time, what these people are saying about the seeker movement, that this is how you build a church is just, is, is, it's nonsense because here's a man who has held to the word of God for years and has that reputation. And he's in basically flew into town and filled up one of the largest church facilities in the area. So 
it dawned on me then um, how much of a hunger there was within this region uh, for the the preached word, for, for it to be preached in a, in a sharp, cutting, uh, Christ-honoring way. So you used a very specific word when you were describing the seeker-sensitive movement, and that was infected, mm-hmm. that the, the churches in your area were infected by that. So obviously, I didn't grow up in church, and so all these different modalities of how to do ministry, I'm still kind of a little fuzzy on that because it's like I basically came to Christ as a teenager and then on into adulthood, and it's just still a little bit fuzzy. Mm-hmm. But I get the pragmatic appeal of the seeker-sensitive model. However, Jacob, when I study the scriptures, and especially the New Testament, and you get into Acts and in the different Pauline letters, is it seems like the church is for Christians, mm-hmm. not necessarily the church, because it's like that's for the equipping of the saints. And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, parents taking their right. kids out of the public schools and then other Christians are like, wait a minute, that's, you know, fertile ground for the gospel. But it's like, yeah, but kids have not been equipped to go into the field to, to do the spreading of the gospel yet. And so talk to me a little bit, I guess, about the role of the church, because again, the pragmatic of the secret sensitive model seems to be, Hey, let's just get them. Let's attract them with as much honey as possible. Let's leave the vinegar to the side. Let's, let's play secular music. So everybody feels comfortable. But then the problem is, is they come in feeling comfortable and they also leave feeling comfortable and the gospel doesn't really leave you with any options. So flow on any of that, that you want to. Well, the the church is a is a spiritual supernatural organization, and so if it's going to be built, it's it's going to be built in a supernatural spiritual way. And and I think what the seeker sensitive movement did is it took marketing techniques that you might learn at a business school and business models that you might learn at a business school, and it tried to apply them to the church with the hopes of building the organization. And I think when you had a, a pastor with with a really, I guess, charismatic personality and really good with people, really good on stage, I think I think it worked to to get people into the church. And 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 then the church would generate a lot of wealth and and then they could afford to do all these flashy programs and spectacles. But did they build a church? I don't think they did. I think they built crowds. And I think that's why I think the COVID times really revealed that because there was all of a sudden a lot of churches that didn't want to gather for worship. And why didn't they want to gather for worship? Well, because they haven't been taught that the church is about the Lord. They've been taught that the church is about them or the church is about making their neighbors happy or the church is about, um, uh, I guess, fitting in and being sensitive to the surrounding culture. And so and so this was embedded or taught or ingrained in these churches for years and years and years and years and years. And, and this is, this is what you get. It's a disaster. And I think a lot of those churches, I remember one of the larger seeker churches, the largest seeker church in the area. I was at a, I was at a wedding not too long ago and I was positioned at a table with a member of that, of that church who'd been there for a long time and he didn't know who I was. Um, and so he, he found out where I went to church and it didn't really dawn on him. We, our church had been in the media quite a bit, and but it didn't really dawn on him. He didn't make the connection right away. And he says, hey, so um, did you guys lay people off, any of your staff off over COVID? And as if that was a normal thing for churches to do, right? And <laughs> no, we didn't. In fact, we we grew through COVID. But, but I think that a lot of churches have had to wrestle with budgetary issues and staffing issues uh, as a result of 
the fact that they've taught them their folks that the church is about I don't know making them happy, making people happy, making a community happy. And all of a sudden, when the gospel and the church itself becomes an offense, it's very difficult for those organizations. So I think that's answering your question. Yeah, certainly. And I think the the thing that's helpful to understand is obviously some of what you're saying is very familiar to what we're experiencing in some areas of the United States. And part of that has to do with, hey, we're in kind of a, a state system where each state, you know, technically, you know, because in a federalist system, they can operate how they want to operate. And so what's happening here in Oklahoma may not sound like what's happening in California, and that's because they can be governed differently. Sure. But there was a shift seemingly in Canada, Jacob, and this will springboard us probably into the documentary that we're here mainly to talk about. And that shift seemed to happen in 2020. Now, if you haven't been paying attention to Canadian politics for any length of time, you would think that 2020 was like the single hinge point for the authoritarian nature of Justin Trudeau's uh, government and those types of things. But that was when it was kind of revealed to the world that the things that came from COVID policy and these so-called health provisions that were coming from your local magistrates there, that's when people were like, wait a minute. Like this is after we had kind of gotten used to it, after we kind of understood what COVID was, that it wasn't going to kill one third of the population. It was going to do much, much less. But take me through what that was like just being a Canadian. We'll get to the pastor side of it because that's where we get into the documentary. But when you just saw what was happening by the elected government, whether you voted for them or not, and how they were treating the local populace of Canada. It was a, it was really hard to digest. But of course, my my political views and my views of government are not part of the the mainstream here. Like they're, they're not part of what we would call the Laurentian consensus, which is kind of central Canada's view of things. My, my view of government has been shaped by scripture. And so, and it would be more traditional Canadian view of government where there should be limited government and there should be individual rights and, and so on. And so when it happened, I, I don't know what was more shocking, the fact that the government did it, and, and they locked everything down and, and they were so hard on the people or that the people wanted it. I don't know what was, I don't know what, what was uh, that the people weren't outraged or that the people actually went along with this nonsense. I don't know what was more shocking to me. I mean, the, I know that our government's wicked and they're, they're evil and satanic in so many ways. Um, but yet that the population who were, were so willing to relinquish their freedoms um, and then turn on people who weren't willing to relinquish them. I think that was, that was awful to see. And I mean, it divided families and everything. So like they, they, it depended where you were in Canada and our part of Canada wasn't the worst part Quebec, French Canada was the worst, but um, it, it was bad here. It was sure bad here. And I think it was something for us looking as Christians, obviously, when things started happening to pastors up there, which we'll get into. Well, let's just get into that sure. now. So how I came across you and your work that you've done is there's a documentary that's out now, guys, it's in the show notes. You should check it out. And here, I'm giving you the commercial before we tell you what it's even about, but it's called Antichrist and His Ruin. So let's just start basically. Where did the idea come from for this documentary? And I, I guess what's the theme of the film and what's your involvement for how it got off the ground? Yeah, thanks for thanks for mentioning that. Thank you, Kyle, for the opportunity to talk about this on your podcast. And you, you can find it at antichristdocumentary.com. And there was a number of things that that came into play um, in my mind as, as we were going through COVID. So by the time the lockdown started, I'd... <sighs> I developed my own thinking on politics and government and the role of government through scripture. 
and and by and in doing that i had also researched and figured out what our history is as canadians because the the public school system has in, intentionally gutted um canadian history as it as it has historically been told and and so i've i became curious i'd say 10 years ago probably longer ago is to you know politically culturally what are our our roots as canadians and so i was able to trace this back to really our our i guess the the glorious revolution in england and even some revolutionary activity in canada in the 19th century that eventually led to confederation and all of this was grounded on a respect for individual rights and and so and then i and then i wanted to trace back this is what i did i i figured out what happened to that mentality and that type of thinking which is a good type of thinking and why that was erased and in canada and how we lost it and in in doing that i was able to to tell the story in our documentary of of how you went from a canadian culture that at the turn of the 20th century was over 95% of english speaking canadians went to a protestant church on sunday and and most of them would have valued responsible government because it had been fought for in the previous century. And when I say responsible government, I mean a government that's responsible to the people is is the preserver of their rights. And so what happened in that century, the last century that led to where we were in 2020. And then I combine that with a book that was written by John Bunyan later in his life. He's of course the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He spent 13 years in jail under Charles II in England. Um, and, uh, and, and he wrote a book defining what Antichrist is, what Antichrist looks like, and, and how we must fight Antichrist. And, and, and so I saw several problems that I was trying to, to meet. One is the problem of the absence of teaching on Canadian history. So how do we get to where we are? And the other problem was in the church, which is the absence of the teaching on Antichrist. And so there's been a there's been videos or, or movies or books written about end time stuff over the last 20, 30 years. And I don't think a lot of that stuff's been very helpful. It's been sensational, but it hasn't helped us think through what the biblical teaching is on Antichrist and what happens when Satan gets the keys of government. And so I wanted to combine the historical side, uh, the Canadian history side with the scriptural side and merge them together to tell a story that's historical and spiritual of the demise of Canada and how I believe that finally climaxed in 2020, 21, and 22 with the, the, the government's persecution of the churches. And, and that's what the, the movie tries to do. And that's why I called it Antichrist in His Room because it's named after John Bunyan's book of Antichrist in His Room that's written, that, that's referenced multiple times in the documentary. Yeah, and I, I watched the documentary, and to be honest with you, it's, I mean, it's the most Canadian thing I've ever watched in my life other than, you know, uh, you know, uh, someone eating maple syrup while watching a hockey, hockey game or something like that. But like, I, it was a whole bunch of stuff I didn't know. And so to Canadians, some of it might seem old hat, but I, I bet you informed a lot of Canadians about their own history that they didn't even understand because we're at a point in American history where our children have no idea who the founding fathers are, except they know that they were racist, horrible slave owners that should have their statues torn down and all their paintings uh, burned in a you know lake of fire or something like that. But let's do some definitional work here from the beginning because, again, having not grown up in church and having just kind of gone to school scripture as as an adult i guess everybody grows up with an idea of what 
uh, what or who the Antichrist is. And so how about we just start there? Who or what is the Antichrist? And, and then we'll just start, you know, piecing together some things from the film here. Well, the way Bunyan describes it, which I think is historically and scripturally accurate, is Antichrist is is a, he apes Christ, he mimics Christ. And so he has a body and he has a spirit. And the body of Antichrist is the host of the spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of Antichrist is a way of thinking, it's a system, it's a spiritual power that is bent on usurping the kingly rule of Jesus Christ. And that spirit, it's a satanic spirit, attaches itself like a parasite to the host. And the host is any institutions that it attaches itself to. And so, and typically in history, those two institutions are the church and the state. And so Antichrist will will parasitically attach itself to a state or to a church or to a state and a church at the same time, and then utilize those institutions to usurp the rule of Christ, to blaspheme Christ, and ultimately to persecute the church because the, the goal of Satan is to, to take Christ's church, Christ's bride, um, into his harem. And, and Bunyan was actually very graphic in how he described it. He said the, the goal of Antichrist is to prostrate or prostrate her to his lusts and to deflower her. And, and so that's, that's strong language, but that is precisely to, to make an adulteress out of the bride of Christ, the beautiful, spotless, blood-bought bride of Christ to lay her on the bed and make her an adulteress, basically. And so I guess that's fun, the funny thing, because as you're learning about the, the Bible and different things, you hear some people talk about Antichrist, and it's whatever politician they don't like the right. most, right? And so during the Obama administration, it was like all these random YouTube videos about how Obama was the Antichrist because this, this, and this. And it's like, wait a minute, I, I think it's much more helpful to look at it as as a spirit that can encapsulate people and things and entities, Okay. The thing that I loved uh, really about the documentary is you've seen documentaries before where it's like right from the beginning, you're like, I have no idea what's grounding any of this, but you start this documentary, Jacob, by describing the Puritans. And I felt like that was an appropriate place to really ground the discussion and really everything that you built on top of it. So why start with the Puritans? Well, there was, there was a couple of reasons. And I, and, and again, so what are we doing? What are we dealing with here? We're dealing with the spiritual side and the historical side. And so what do the Puritans offer to us from a historical side? Well, as far as our nation goes, the nation of Canada, it, our rights and liberties really flowered during the Puritan era and then were captured at the end of the Puritan era in, in 1688 and 1689 with the English Bill of Rights. And and by the way, if you if you understand the history of the English speaking world, you know 1776 in America wasn't like some an anomaly. They traced that back to 1688, and previous English civil wars and revolutions where rights were developed. So we share a common history here as English speakers. So that's the that's the that's the historical side, and the spiritual side is. Well, as evangelicals, um, English-speaking evangelicals, we really do trace our roots um, into the Protestant Reformation and then this, really the second English Reformation, which is the Puritan era in the 17th century. So, so much of our theology and then so much of our political thought, historically speaking, traditionally speaking, was shaped in that 17th century. Um, the theology was crystallized with the Westminster Confession, with the Baptist Confession, 
And then the political outlook um, and thinking was crystallized under Oliver Cromwell and the Protectorate. And then beyond that in 1688 and 1689, after the Glorious Revolution, where these historic English rights were articulated in the Bill of Rights, which included um, the freedom of religion and freedom of worship. And I think people need to understand, because again, we we love to buck against whatever is conventional now, and I use the term we loosely, but as a society, whatever convention is, that's going to get in the way of progress. Right. And so we, we need to take out whatever convention is. So convention might be deciding, you know, what the differences are between male and female, between the, the normal nuclear family, between the system of government we have now versus the one that we want to ring in because utopia is actually something that we can actually attain or something nonsensical like that. But this, the the thing that you make the the claim that you make in the documentary, and I feel like it's it's very well stated and and well researched and uh, well argued, is that the state and that's capital capital S state took over the family and the church in Canada. And so we're going to keep the discussion there with Canada because there are some bleed overs to here to the United States, but this is distinctly talking about what happened in Canada. So I guess how Jacob did the state take over these? hegemonic, you know, dominant forces like the family, the capital F family and the capital C church. Well, it was, it, it was a slow, it was a slow move with some key, some key parts to it. And so if you go into the 20th century and you start the 20th century, Canada is very much, um, a, a truly liberal democracy in, in the best sense, not, not the lefty liberal. That's not what I'm talking about, but a, a democracy where there's a separation of institutions. There's a plurality of institutions. You have a respect for the family you have a respect for the church, even to the point where in the early part of the 20th century, um, it was enacted and it was debated in parliament and they passed the law that we would have a Sabbath law in Canada. And so there was a Sabbath law that was instated. So you didn't work on Sundays in Canada unless it was a work of necessity. And I think that was very much God honoring. Um, that, of course, is overturned in the 80s. But but it, what really shifted was that post-World War II generation. So after World War II, there was a movement towards socialism. And that, and that really was the spirit of Antichrist, because what the socialist movement is doing is it's it's putting everything under the rubric of the state as opposed to having a family that's independent of the state or hospitals that are independent of the state or a church that's independent of the state or an education system that's independent of the state. Socialism is, is putting everything is mushing together. So there's no distinction. It's all one, right? It's a big blob. And, and, but what, in order to do that successfully in Canada, they had to gut us of our history and gut us of our of our constitutional heritage. And the and the gutting of our history and the gutting of our constitutional heritage occurred primarily under Pierre Elliott Trudeau in the late 60s. And so when Pierre Elliott Trudeau was was elected, one of his first orders of business as prime minister was to pass this omnibus bill. And I think it was 1968 when Trudeau passed the Omnibus Bill. And the Omnibus Bill completely shaped, reshaped Canadian thinking. And, and what it did was it legalized abortion, it legalized sodomy, it legalized birth control, it legalized gambling, and it restricted gun ownership. So you think about that. Restrict gun ownership and then make all of these other things more liberal, but make gun ownership less liberal. That was all in 1968 under Pierre Elliott Trudeau. 
And so with that omnibus bill that he passed, there was also an intentional shift in the in the Canadian mind as to what our identity is as a people. And as opposed to being a an English-speaking people who who benevolently tolerate French Catholicism in Quebec, an English-speaking people who root our liberties and our rights in history, in um in the revolutionary activity in Upper and Lower Canada in the 19th century, and in the Glorious Revolution of 1688, and in King Alfred's common law in the 9th century, instead of that, we intentionally identified as a multicultural people, which on the, on the surface is presented as, oh, we're multicultural. That means we're not racist. No one wants to be a racist, right? And But that's not what multiculturalism is. Multiculturalism isn't the statement that all ethnicities are equal in the sight of God. Multiculturalism is the statement that all ways of life are equal because the state says they're equal. And it's it's a Trojan horse that, that brings in license for the state to do whatever the heck they want to do. Uh, and that's essentially what multiculturalism did. So that became state policy late 60s, early 70s with this omnibus bill. So then what happens after that? Well, now what the state does is it redefines our constitutional rights in the early 80s with, again, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And in redefining our constitutional rights, they usher in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which delineates many of our historical rights, conveniently leaves out the right to bear arms, which was part of our constitutional history. That was in the English Bill of Rights in 1689, but they conveniently leave that out. They conveniently leave out property rights. And they put this little poison pill in the Constitution, the Charter of Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the poison pill is that these rights can be removed so long as that can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So now all of a sudden the government has the right to restrict our human rights, our, our rights, our ancient rights that we've had since Canadians since time immemorial. That was in the early 80s. And then once they start screwing around with that, then they start screwing around with the... Um, the the family and so early 2000s they bring in the same sex so-called same sex marriage sodomite marriage and then they and then they start making all these tranny laws in the last few years and is this is all going on the government is taking a, a bigger role in healthcare so it's privatizing healthcare um, they're they're intentionally gutting the public school system they they'd already taken over the public school system and so that I mean that that was a mistake in my mind but they start gutting the public school system of, of religious, you know, because we're now multicultural. Who needs the Lord's Prayer in school? Well, I remember very clearly when I was a kid, we'd say the Lord's Prayer in school and they teach us the Christmas story. And now if you go on the, the Twitter feed for our local school board, every day is a new religious festival. Why? Because we're multicultural. So every religion now is equal as long as they give their ultimate allegiance to the state. So if you want to talk about the official gutting of Canada, I think it, it really happened in the late 60s with the advent of multiculturalism and with Pierre Trudeau's omnibus bill. And then it was a, a bow was tied on the top of it with our new constitution in, in the early 80s. And then finally, the icing and, and everything, all the sparkles was the, the sodomite marriage and, and all these new tranny things that they're bringing in. Jacob, I appreciate you going into that level of detail. And guys, there's way more detail even in the documentary, but that is a really, really good summation. One thing that we talk about all the time, you you likely hear this phrase, state-sanctioned state 
blank. And then we just fill in the blank. Oh, that's state sanctioned this or state sanctioned that. But what happened in 1968, that was state defined morality. Because just think about that, like that is an astonishing because, you know, we always complain about omnibus bills and packages and for good reason, because you have these, you know, 40,000 page bills that no one could possibly read. It's like, hey, we're going to vote on this in three hours and no one can possibly read it. But again, I'll run down the list that you gave us. Abortion, sodomy, gambling, gun control. Oh, and we'll throw birth control in there just as a thing. Can you imagine an entity being able to just with literally the stroke of a pen change the cultural milieu and morality of those issues, each one of which should require a tremendous amount of debate and elections and voting on certain laws and different things. But no, 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 just by whoop, this is how we're changing things. And that was one of the first dominoes to fall. So it didn't start in 2020. It started in 1968 and it goes back before then. But that is one of the most astonishing things that nobody knows about. Nobody knows, like that should be talked about all over the globe because people always talk about here in America that whatever nonsense happens in Canada is flushed down the toilet and ends up in America. It's like, okay, to a degree, were y'all paying attention to what's been happening over the last several decades? Because a lot of, there are a lot of people here in America, governors and democratic politicians that love what the Trudeaus, Pierre and Justin have done over these last several decades to really decay what was built in the foundation of Canadian life and just Canadian morality as writ large, I guess you could say, but let's go ahead and go to 2020. So, so we've been at this long enough. Let's talk about 2020. Everybody, we've all went through, we know what COVID uh, has done. We know what the lockdowns did. We know what masking did or didn't do. We know what the vax does or doesn't do. And all that's basically out there now. And everyone that was considered a conspiracy theorist has basically been found to be saying the truth at this point here in 2023. But let's go back to 2020. We have these lockdowns. And then we start hearing these random reports, Jacob, of pastors not just being harassed in Canada, but being arrested. James Coates was a pastor that I reached out to his church. You know, whenever he was put in jail, I talked to one of his associate pastors while he was sitting there in prison. And we were thinking they may not let this guy out. Like they may make an example out of this man so that they have a scalp that they can nail onto the wall. Take us back to that time because, you know, I guess it technically started with Pastor Coates, but then even you got wrapped up in all this. So let's start there and see where we go. Well, we could wind back to March of 2020 when they forced they put they pushed the churches to shut down, and that's when I, our church had to deal with things internally and finally figure out. Like I, I was trying to move the whole way to to open defiance against the state because I didn't think the state had any authority over the church. But eventually, we got developed consensus within our leadership, and uh, sadly, some people left. But that's the way something go. You know, things go sometimes, and. Um, and then we move into the fall of 2020, and it's very clear that the government's going to uh, start locking us down again. And so our elders decided we're going to defy the government. And so we wrote a, we actually wrote a letter to the chief of police. I don't know whether we should have done that in hindsight, but we did. <laughs> and we wrote a letter to the chief of police, and we let him know what we were going to do. And and so the first Sunday was a Sunday after Christmas. I can't remember whether it was the 27th or whatever, December of 2020. And they had cops outside our church and they were trying to threaten our people and intimidate them. And people just came to church. Then the next Sunday we did it again. And then the media started dumping on us. And, um, and then we, we took a break. We, we pulled, we pulled back and we went out in the parking lot for two weeks. 
because we just wanted to de-escalate things. And then we had a court order on us. The government brought in a court order and, and they ordered us to comply with all the COVID mandates. And so after giving them two weeks, I, re, you know, I regret my biggest regrets in this whole thing is anything we ever did to appease the government because they're unappeasable. And this is what I learned. It doesn't matter how much I try to deescalate. It doesn't matter how much I try to work with them. They do not want to work with us. Right. And it's like the whole thing. You give the devil an inch. He takes a mile. Well, and Jacob, I learned that the, real quick, you can never bow low enough before the mob. That's why I tell no. people if the mob is coming after you and mobbing you for your moral positions on any issue, do not apologize no. ever because it will no, never don't, be enough. Don't give them a bloody thing. And that, and so the only things that I regret from this whole thing, and I have a lot of fines. Our church has a lot of fines. We've been charged with contempt of court two times. The only thing I regret is the times we didn't fight harder. And so that's it. That's my only regret. I wish we fought harder, but whatever. We, you know, you learn as you go. And anyway, so we had a court order, and then it was when we got that court order is is when I did meet James Coates. And so we had our court order. We opened in contempt of court, and then he and I talked on the phone that week. And I think I think they had a court order or something too. And then they saw, they decided they were going to open in defiance of whatever order their government gave them. Well, we got we got crapped on. And I think we had $120,000 in fines for that first contempt of court hearing. And then James never really got any consequences. So that's where he really started getting attention is after, and, and, and then that's when he went to jail was a few weeks after that whole scene. Mm. After he went into jail, things were lifted in Ontario. Um, we, we resurfaced again. And as, as, a, as elders, I think, I think what happened when he went to jail is that's when we really galvanized. And through that season, I think Tim Stevens might have been arrested, and I certainly got to know him. Mm-hmm. And then Easter came around 2021, and that's when they they. <laughs> there's actually some really fun stories about our Easter leading up to Easter because they had this court order on us, and we were in defiance of the court order, defiance of the court order, defiance of the court order. And they would put cops outside our church, and we wouldn't let the cops on our property. We told them we don't want them here. You're not allowed here. You're not allowed in our building. We don't want you here. And so they decided to leave us alone in that way. But they. They'd surround the perimeter of our church mm. and they take pictures of our wives and children as they were going in the church. So what we did was we, we got, I think it was about six, seven, eight RVs. Like, you know, like big, huge trailers mm-hmm. that you can live in. And we surrounded our entryways with RVs. So the men would drive around the trailers, drop their wives and children off and then go park the car which really ticked off the bylaw officers because they couldn't get all the pictures. <laughs> yeah. And and apparently a bunch of guys in our church got the cell phone number of one of the bylaw officers who was taking pictures of our wives and children and he got a <laughs> he got several phone calls that were not and we never saw him again. I don't know what happened to him. Yeah. But but then the next week what we did is we built I think it was a 16-foot fence around our perimeter. So they couldn't see into our, our, our facility and the cops lined up. There must've been 10 of them that lined up outside the exits from our, from our property. And then they would chase people down as they left the church and they chased them down. They took them on the road. And so what the guys started doing is they would, they would do, they would do rounds. One guy would leave the, uh, the, the, the parking lot and he'd get the cops. It would be like Smokey and the bandit. If you ever saw that movie, mm-hmm. cops would chase him. He'd decoy the cops. People would leave. He'd go back get the cops to chase them, decoy the cops, people would leave. So that was, 
we had a lot of fun with the police and yeah. some of and some of these teens. And the guys have the guys have great memories. The the I mean, we did so many things that that just bonded the church. The guys had a great time with it. We all tell stories about it and laugh now, almost fall off our chairs, you know. But anyway, eventually the government charged it with contempt of court again, and they stole our building from us. They locked us out of our building. I quickly got all my books out of my office, out of my study, and I and I moved my office to above a horse barn somewhere where uh, someone generously, and then and then our church figured out what to do and, and continue to be faithful without them, you know, paying much attention to us. But it, it was a, it was a hard season in a lot of ways. It was stressful, but it was a lot of fun. And, um, now the church has six tickets. I think that's 60 million in fines. And I've got a 11, that's 1.1 million. All the elders have five or six fines, five, 600,000. And we're, all these things are before the court. We just lost our appeal. And guess what? We lost our appeal. The judges, it was a three judge panel and the judges acknowledged. They said, yes, your constitutional rights were justified or were violated. Yes, they were. But guess what else the the judges said? The Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms says that your charter of rights can be justified as long as that or can be violated so long as that can be justified in a free and democratic society. And so they said it was justified because we give deference to the government. And so they give deference to the government in their constitutional ruling. And we didn't even have one dissenting dissenting opinion on the three-judge panel. They gave complete deference to the government because the government, under our new constitutional order here in Canada, is the ultimate and final authority over all things. So, so Jacob, let's play this out a little bit further. So uh, my understanding is since you lost your appeal, you're now going to be going to the Supreme Court of Canada or whatever the whatever it's called up there in Canada. So what happens if your denial of your appeal is upheld, which is to say that, yes, you are you did violate uh, these laws. I mean, are y'all on the hook to pay these in total millions and millions of dollars? Are we going to see Canadian pastors uh, going back into prison? Because like, if you refuse to pay, like everything the government does is at the threat of a gun and they can put you behind bars if they so choose to do so. What are the next steps? What does it look like from here? Well, I've learned to trust the Lord day by day. And so the Bible says, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself. And we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto us. And that's what I've learned to do. So I don't worry about it. Um, there's, there's other things that have to be dealt with. So there's prosecutors and, and local judges are going to have to decide. I mean, those are maximum penalties. The maximum is 60 million for the church. The maximum's 1.1 million for me personally. Um, so they have to, they have to decide all that stuff. Um, in the event that we lose our constitutional appeal. And I'm not optimistic that we're going to win it, but well, we'll see. I don't, I don't worry about it. Okay. Well, we'd love to, uh, to kind of keep up with that. And I'd love to keep the guys, uh, that listen to the show guys and gals that listen to the show up to date on that. So we'll do what we can to stay in connection with you as far as that goes. Now right. there was one quote and, and I, this isn't going to be a shock to anybody that's listened to the, I guess the, the tone and tenor of this conversation up to this point. I believe this was your quote from the film, but it was be kind without being nice. Okay. Now I constantly tell people that there are, there are times where you are going to be called unloving by doing things that the Bible tells you are moral or immoral. And if someone says, Hey, you're being unloving, but you are actually being loving by the dictates of the Bible, then just don't worry about it. Right. But, 
that that's not licensed also to be a dickhead. That's not licensed to just be a jerk for the sake of being a jerk, right? It's a, you know, take your IPA and pour it on their head and then ash your cigar on their mouth. Like don't do those types of things, but there are times where you will be called rude and unloving by doing things that are actually loving. But when you say be kind without being nice, what do you mean by that? I think that was actually Nate, Pastor Nate Wright that said that okay. in the documentary, but I, I, the, the word kind, if you actually research the etymology of the word kind, it, it's, it's derived from the word kin. And so if you're going to be kind to someone etymologically, you're actually treating them like your kin, like your family, right? And so how do you, how do you operate as a family? I mean, I have, I have six kids, um, I have, I, I grew up in a family of four kids. I'm the oldest. I got two brothers and a sister. And sometimes when you're family, you have disagreements, you spar, you, you talk things out and it's, and it's not, it's not always a bed of roses, but that's how healthy relations, there's debate. There, there's a level of, of healthy adversity, right? It's ironing, sharpening iron is one man sharpens another. And so when you treat each other like kin, like a family, you, there, there is, there is an adverse, there is a loving adversarialism that, that should take place. I mean, certainly in a marriage, I mean, any, any married couple that never have a disagreement and don't have to talk out the disagreement are, you really wonder what the heck's going on in their marriage, that that wouldn't be a healthy situation. And certainly with siblings and, and extended families. So being nice, however, I think the perception of being nice is you're always just trying to make everyone happy. And, 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 and really when you're, when you're always trying to make everyone happy, your tone, as you call it, the tone and the tenor or, or what you're saying is being dictated by somebody else. Whereas if you're treating them like kin, you're operating within the confines of relationship and, and things can be said that need to be said as it should be. And I think that's funny. I, it's probably been said a million times before, but I remember uh, Vody Bauckham talking about the tone police and how there's there's constantly people talking about, oh, well, the tone of your message just isn't really nice. Right. And it's like, well, and he kind of makes fun of him. He's like, well, yeah, the 11th commandment is just to be as nice as possible all the time, right? But one thing that you we have, talk we have about- a lot of tone, we have a lot of tone police amongst churches here in Canada. A lot. Oh, <laughs> oh, the the, the tone police here are are the most righteous people you'll ever meet, believe me. Well, and the funny thing about the tone police that I've noticed is they all tend to be on the effeminate side of the ledger. They're never yes. worried about the tone being being too feminine, right? That's They're right. always worried about the tone being too aggressive and too masculine, which it leads me to my next question is just the overall need of men in this fight. And so there's something that I talk about often here. So there are a lot of churches down here in America. They're scared. Well, I guess around the entire globe, they're scared to death to talk about abortion. These feckless, effeminate pastors, they don't want to talk about abortion because they know there's a woman in the crowd that's had one and they don't want anyone to feel judged and all those different things. The thing about it is you can say, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are That's in right. Christ Jesus. And now you talk about abortion, okay? You can talk about it in a way that doesn't make these women feel condemned, but makes them understand that their level of depravity is what leads to the gospel. And everyone's level of depravity is leads to the need of the gospel. But before I get off too far, I tell people all the time, if you're concerned about your pastor not equipping the saints of your church to push back on the darkness of abortion, what you need to do is you need to go into his office and you say, Pastor, I've been here for 10 years. You've never once talked about abortion in any lengthy way. I think you should do so. Please equip the saints. Um, uh, please do that. And if you do, 
I will stand in front of you and take some of the slings and arrows coming your way. And then you leave his office and then there better be a dozen more guys waiting in the lobby to do the exact same thing. And part of it is to steal S T E E L to steal his nerves and to make him feel like, okay, the men of my congregation, right? The lions of my congregation, they've got my back. Let's go push back some darkness. The same thing that happened with you and the other pastors, Jacob, whenever James Coates kind of passed the threshold, the point of no return, it's like, okay, it's time. Like, let's gird our loins and let's get after it. But talk to me to me about the need of men in this fight, not just in Canada, but anywhere where the gospel should be put into culture. Yeah, I, I, I really, what you said resonates with me as far as people talking to their pastors, but I really think the onus is on the pastors to embolden the people. I agree. And, I agree. And one of the reasons the church, I, the people don't rise above the pulpit. Mm-hmm. And so if the pastor is gelded, what's going to, it's going to create a, ch- a culture within the church where any man who does have testicular fortitude is going to feel like he's a second or third rate Christian because he doesn't pass the tone test. Right. He, he actually talks like, like a man. And, and so these, these men, and so really one of the first ways that pastors, I think have to show and demonstrate courage is by being courage, courageous and resolved with the people that they're supposed to be leading. Right. So Mm. if you're afraid of the women in your church that have had abortions, get out of your pulpit. Are you kidding me? Leave. Like I, I've been, I've, I've said from the pulpit before, and, and I said it many times, if you are a woman in this church and you've had an abortion, you're a murderer, but Jesus died for murderers. And guess what happens, Kyle, women who have had abortions in our church, in my church get saved and they come out and they testify to that. I got saved. I didn't like the pastor's message. I went home. I got angry. And I didn't want to come back, but something else, something drew me back. Well, we know that's the Holy Spirit of God working in their hearts, brings them back, and they hear it again and again, and then they get saved. And we actually have a public testimony on our, our website of a video of a lady who got saved that way. And a, just a beautiful testimony um, of salvation. But I, I don't understand, I don't understand that mentality, but we do need to have lions um who are, who are roaring. And this is not the, I, I mean, I think a lot of the way these guys operate right now in pulpits probably would have been okay in 1952, but this is a totally, this is a totally different world. This, this world is, is bass backwards and you can't operate in good faith towards your government anymore because they hate you and they hate truth. They, they lie right to your face. The media lies right to your face. And anyone that's going to willingly stand up and honestly, without smirking, say a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man, that tells you how far it's gone. Well, Th- Jacob, that's not a good. That's not a good faith discussion. It's certainly not a good faith discussion. It's not based in any form of reality. But the right. other thing about it is, is there's this new attitude amongst uh, Christians and certain pastors: is I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. And people that will say that bumper sticker slogan or will will stand by it don't understand that when you say you are for something, you automatically communicate that you are against other things. Whether we're talking yeah, but- about your favorite ice cream or we're talking about transgenderism or abortion, that's exactly what you're communicating. And so, but, but go ahead. You want to hop back in? 
No, I was going to say, though, the guys that say that, I know them, and I can name them. I, I know their faces. They're, they, I'll tell you what, they're against people that are against things, and I'll let you know that. So oh, I'm, I'm, I'm self-righteously, I am only around, I'm only for certain things. Well, the minute you get a guy that's against something, they're against him. Right. Well, and the thing about it is, it's like, it's like, it's the same as the people that are like, well, you should be more tolerant. It's like, I agree. Tolerance is important. Will you be tolerant of my disputatious attitude towards your nonsense worldview? No. Okay. Well, your entire argument is now in the trash bin because it makes no sense whatsoever. So, yeah, so it's Jacob, a card trick. yeah, absolutely. It's a card trick, but we're running uh, close to time here. So I do want to end with this one question. Another thing that you guys talk about in the film is the importance of having children, but also creating a Christian village. And what's interesting about that wording is my wife, even in the last few weeks has been talking about our village, our village, our village a lot. And what she's talking about are the Christian families and couples in our lives that we are doing life with. So these are the people that we go to the same church. We're in the same Sunday school. Uh, we're doing dinner and life together. We're praying for one another. We're, we're taking our kids to the same private Christian schools or, or whatever the thing is for you and your village. But talk to me about the importance of a Christian village because this isn't about, okay, we're going to have our village and we're just going to pretend as if society doesn't exist and we're going to not care about being salt and light. We're just going to stay here in our little cocoon and watch Veggie Tales and, and not ever challenge one another. But talk to me about the importance of being in this fight, being able to push back against the darkness in culture and the darkness of government by having a Christian village. Well, you could, you could imagine that in the height of our persecution and lockdown, there was a lot of conversations going on. Should we leave? Right. Florida is looking very attractive right now. And, but we, we have had two, maybe two families, I think out of, a, you know, a church of 1200 people, two families that moved um, to United States, three, I think three, two, two to Florida and one to, um, I think it was Missouri or something like that. But anyway, but the majority don't even think it. They don't talk about it. And the reason is I think most of us have realized that there's so much love and unity and love of Christ within the church that I'd rather live in Trudeau's Canada with a lovely Christ-centered church than I would, that, that, that knows me and that I know, than Ron DeSantis's Florida without a church, because the, there's so much life and and joy and strength that comes from, and, and this is why our community, our, our civil leaders, don't know how to deal with us. How do you deal with a church of 1,200 people that's that united? And it's amazing, actually, how such a small minority of people who are resolute and unified can make such a massive difference in one in one city. They, you know, so we live in the Waterloo region. There's six hundred thousand people in this region, but but our little church of twelve hundred people has really, really, really impacted this community in a way that is way, 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 way outside. Like we're swinging way above our league, but out of our league, out of our weight class. But I think that's because it's such a fractured society where everyone's doing their own little individualistic thing. And they're, they're all, they're all, they're all little bunch of little marbles that are moving around. But then you have all of these marbles that have come together and have been glued together with crazy glue. 
the the other little wee marbles don't know how to deal with us. And so I I think not only for your the sake of your own soul do you need a, a community that's bound by covenant and love and and the Holy Spirit of God and Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ that that's good for your soul. But boy, is it a testimony to the surrounding world that just doesn't they like you're a hot potato. <laughs> There's nothing we can do that like there's a national, the, the state broadcaster, CBC, it's funded by the Trudeau government. They're lefty, lefty propaganda machine. They're actually doing, they're researching our church right now. It's a national, national corporation. Like, you know, it's huge. And they're researching our church right now to do a documentary on us. And so and I think there's going to be other Christians that are involved in it too, but they're certainly, they're going, you know, they've sent people into our parking lot and we just tell them to leave and they send us emails. And, and you'd think that we'd be sitting here, you know, oh, what's going to happen? Big mean CBC is going to do a documentary and an hour long hit piece with all their money. On, and we're sitting here laughing. Like we honestly don't care. And, and I think that's, that comes from a faith in God that we have. And then it comes from the unity that we share as a people. And it's actually a lovely thing. And this is what Jesus talked about when he talked about being a reproach. Like there's a power in embracing the shame and the scandal of the cross. And it's through that. And this is what the seeker sensitive. We, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're wrapping things up, we started with a seeker movement and this is what they mm -hmm. missed. It's the spiritual power that comes when the Christian community embraces the scandal and shame of the, of the cross and the world doesn't know how to handle it. And that's very attractive and that's how God draws people into his kingdom. I think that's a great place to leave it. I mean, we've we've talked about a lot of things in this podcast. There's certainly more to discuss, but we'll have to leave it there. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest before we let you out of here? Thank you, Kyle, for having me. And check out antichristdocumentary.com. Guys, it is in the show notes. You can check it out. Jacob Rayom, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. My pleasure. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Jacob Rion. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got for you today is a link to where you can go and rent or buy Antichrist and his ruin. Guys, definitely go and check that out. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah <laughs>